Good morning, Life Church. I'm glad to see you. Good to be with you this morning. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I am one of the staff elders here, and it's my joy to open the Bible with you this morning. As Matt has mentioned, we are um, in Mark chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 20 this morning. This is a famous passage, a famous parable that Jesus taught. Perhaps you know it. Whether you do or not, I think it will help you. Um, to have this passage in front of you as we work through it together today. So in your Bible or on your Bible, I'd love it if you would turn to Mark 4, 1 through 20. Um, I'll admit to you, um, when we locked in the Mark sermon series last year, um, knowing that we'd be walking through the Gospel of Mark in 2023, um, this is one of those passages where like very, very early on in my planning, like I just circled this date on the calendar. Um, because this is a passage that is, um, it's dear to me. Um, it's a passage that has shaped significantly the way I think about God, the way I think about following him. Um, it's shaped significantly the way that I think about ministering to people and especially this task that the Lord has given me 40 or so Sundays every year to stand up before you and to tell you what God says. And so um, I just... Um, have been looking forward to this day. That's not really the right thing to say. I've had a burden for this day, and I've been eager to come before you um, and to share with you the things that Jesus says here, um, that the Holy Spirit inspired Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, to record for us here. There are some challenging truths here, but there are some rich truths here. And I just pray that the Lord will help us as we we kind of mine together in God's word for those truths today. Have you ever wondered why some people can come face to face with the truth of who Jesus is and yet turn from him and in the end reject him? Have you ever wondered why some people can have like a real encounter with Jesus and yet in the end, reject him. Today, and even in Jesus' day, why do so many people encounter him and then reject him? I believe I met Marshall Miller for the first time in 2015. I'm sorry, 2005, not 2015. Um, I was uh, pastoring a youth group in Amarillo, Texas, and Marshall's twin brother, Mitchell, was really interested in dating one of the girls who regularly attended that youth group. And so Marshall and Mitchell started to attend together somewhat regularly. Now, Mitchell was interested in one thing and one thing only, and that was not Jesus. But Marshall, he seemed um, like curious and open and willing to at least have a conversation about things that really mattered. And so I remember fondly, a few occasions when Marshall and I would like sit down over a cup of coffee and I would talk with him about the gospel. I would talk with him about who Jesus claimed to be and what the Bible tells us Jesus had done for us. And I would talk to him about the problem that we have that required Jesus to do the things that Jesus did. Um, Marshall, he like seemed open, curious, interested. And then kind of on a limb, his brother didn't come, but kind of on a limb, Marshall signed up to join our youth ministry for summer camp. We did summer camp every year in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in northern New Mexico, and 
Marshall signed up for our high school camp, and he, he got on the church van and drove up with us, um, you know, the dozens of students that were with us, and he was a part of that experience. And I remember it was really during that week of camp that, that it seemed like, you know, a light switch was flipped for Marshall, like his, something, something clicked, right? Like he, he suddenly started to like have enthusiasm for the things that we had been discussing. He professed faith in the doctrines that we had been teaching to him. And I wasn't the only person who thought this. Like, as Marshall came to that, like, profession of faith, like, everything about that dude changed, right? Like, his character, his attitude, his demeanor, the way that he would look you in the eye, all of these things seemed to be suddenly different about Marshall. And, and in a real way, like, his face, it started to radiate the glory of the Lord. The same way, it made me think about um, in the book of Exodus when, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he, he sees God and he comes back down off the mountain and the elders of Israel are like, bro, we got to do something because your face is shiny, right? Like Moses' encounter with God had changed him so much that the Israelites put a veil over Moses' face so they didn't hurt anybody. And I remember commenting with like adult leaders in our church that that's really what it was like coming down off the mountains and the Sangre de Cristos with Marshall. Like he was just a completely affected dude by what he had encountered and the faith that he professed to have. And he continued to walk in that faith as soon as we got home, right? Like he started uh, coming incredibly regularly to our youth ministry. He joined a small group in our youth ministry. I remember he even started like a small group prayer time on Wednesday mornings at his high school uh, with other students who were Christians in his high school. Like he just seemed to really walk the walk and talk the talk for months. Marshall's enthusiasm was contagious and encouraging until one day it wasn't anymore. One day, like months later, like Marshall just stopped. He dropped it. Like everything pertaining to the faith in Jesus that he had professed. He disappeared. He dodged phone calls. He wouldn't answer text messages. I think about a year later, I ran into him at his high school graduation. He was awkward. He wouldn't look me in the eye. He scoffed and changed the subject when I asked him about his relationship with Jesus. And I just asked myself, as I have asked so many times over the years, why do some people encounter Jesus and then, in the end, reject him? It's a problem or a question in Jesus' day, too, right? We've been reading about this problem or this question in the Gospel of Mark. Emory preached so well on this last week when he walked us through Mark chapter 3. And, and we saw in Mark chapter 3, three groups of people who encounter Jesus and then it seems reject him. Right? The first group of people is the crowd. And Emory noted that like the crowd, it's like a character in the Gospel of Mark. It's unruly. It's demanding. They come to Jesus because they want what Jesus has to offer. They sense that the homeboy has like some supernatural power and they want to get in on that. But as we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, even the beneficiaries of some of that supernatural power, like the second Jesus starts making commands or demands, like that crowd disappears. They're people who encountered the real, true Jesus, but they reject him. Why? 
Second group of people in Mark chapter 3 that do this, it's the infamous, the notorious scribes and religious leaders. I mean, it's incredible to me. These are guys who knew their Bibles inside and out, right? They knew what the prophets said about who Messiah would be and what Messiah would do. They knew what everything in the Old Testament said about Jesus, and then Messiah came and they met Jesus face to face, and they held him at an arm's length and turned away from him. Like, how can people who know everything that's promised about this man then meet the man and say, you know what, not interested? How can people come face to face with the real true Jesus and then in the end reject him? Third group of people, even more incredibly, Jesus' own family. Mark tells us at the end of chapter 3 that this group includes Jesus' own mother. You know, Mary, the one who experienced that whole virgin birth thing. Right? She shows up along with some of Jesus' blood relatives, and they're concerned about the trouble that he's creating. They're concerned about some of the things that Jesus is claiming. And even though that doesn't amount to an outright rejection of who Jesus is, still we see people who are coming face to face with the living Jesus and not embracing him, not following him, not worshiping him. How is it possible? How can so many people in the Bible, in our lives, and in the history of the world encounter Jesus and in the end then reject him? That's a question that our passage today answers. This passage, it explains a phenomenon that we know all too well, the phenomenon of someone seeing Jesus and then rejecting Jesus the phenomenon of someone hearing Jesus' voice and then stopping their ears and tuning Jesus out. This is a passage that explains Marshall Miller and the crowds and the scribes and the religious leaders and Jesus' own family. It's a passage that explains you and me. Let's read it together. We're starting in Mark 4, verse 1. Mark writes... Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching many things in parables. Now, before we go on, just picture this for a minute, right? Again, the crowd, this unruly beast, It's come to hear Jesus teach, but really they want to demand from Jesus the things that Jesus can do. And now it's so large that Jesus is forced to get in a boat beside the sea. It's the only way he can kind of keep the crowd from from crushing him and pressing in on him. And so you can picture Jesus in this little boat, just a small distance from the shore and the throngs and throngs of people that are around him. And here this man He teaches, as he has so many times already in the Gospel of Mark, he teaches with authority. Verse 2, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, 
And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, perhaps if Jesus were teaching today, he would have used a different image than this one. I don't know what that image would be, maybe different methods for posting the most dynamic videos on TikTok. Maybe he would talk about the folly of, you know, cheering for certain basketball teams rather than others. I don't know. Like the point is that like what Jesus is teaching resonated with his audience. It's an image that they understood immediately, even if it seems a little bit foreign to us, right? Every man and woman and child in Jesus's audience, in the crowd that day, they could understand the picture that Jesus was painting. A man with a bag of seed tied around his waist, walking his field and rhythmically reaching his hand into that bag, grabbing a fistful of seed, and then just casting it out on the ground. As Jesus will explain, the seed in this parable, it's a symbol for the powerful word of God. The sower is anyone who casts, who proclaims that word. And the types of soil, they represent different conditions of the human heart. And so the parable is ultimately about how certain people have hearts that receive the word, while other people do not. As the sower scatters his seed, some of it falls on the path. And the birds, they immediately flutter down, Jesus says, and they pluck up that seed and eat it, and then they fly away. So the seed accomplishes absolutely nothing on the path. The sower casts again, and this time some of his seed, it falls on rocky ground, and it sprouts up quickly, but just as quickly. It wilts under the hot Palestinian sun. The rocks, they prevent the seed from growing deep, and so the plant cannot survive the elements. The sower casts a third time, Jesus says, and this time he's flinging seeds among thorny plants. The seed grows, but so too do those thorny plants, and Eventually, they choke out the freshly planted seed. Other seed, finally, falls on good soil. How does one know that it's good soil? Well, because the seed multiplies 30, 60, 100 times. End of parable. How does all of this apply to us? Well, fortunately, Jesus and Mark work together to tell us In verses 10 through 12, Jesus, he engages in a conversation with his 12 disciples and some followers about the purpose of parables. I'm not dodging that. We're going to come back to that. But before we do that, let's look at verse 13 and following to see how Jesus explains this parable and applies it. Verse 13, Jesus said to them, again, to his disciples and some close followers, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And then Jesus begins to explain how each type of soil corresponds to a different condition of the human heart. In verse 15, he discusses the seed that's sown along the path. Let's call this a description of a hardened heart. Jesus said, verse 15, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, 
Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them, a hardened heart. Now, according to Jesus, there are really two problems for people who have hearts like this. The first problem is the hardness of the soil, and then the second problem is the speed of the enemy, right? When the word of God is sown among people like this, because the soil is hard, it just bounces off the ground like marbles bouncing on a sidewalk. And then, before you can blink, Satan, he swoops in and he snatches up the seed. So Satan's speed and cunning, they combine with the hardness of the soil to ensure that this seed will never take root. Now, I'm sure that you know someone with a heart that is hardened like this. Now, that doesn't mean that they are terrible people on the surface, doesn't mean that they seem super wicked, right? There may be no apparent evil in their lives, but they maintain a steady and subtle rebellion against God by refusing to center their lives around him, by refusing to acknowledge him and worship him for who he is and what he has done. Their lives, they may not be given over to any particular vice, they may not be apparently wicked. Indeed, their lives can be consumed by seemingly good things like family and friends. They may give themselves to nothing worse than, I don't know, than occasional drink and a night out on the town, but their hardness is revealed not by what they do, but by what they do not do. They do not in any way bend their knees in reverent worship to God the God who created all things and who offers redemption from our sins, they live not for him, but ultimately for themselves. That's how their hardness is revealed. The hard ground of such hearts, it needs to be broken up so that the word can take root. Often the plowing that's needed in a life like this is pain. Right? Some stress or grief that will cause such people to become open to God's word. Have you not sensed in your own life that God often speaks more clearly and loudly and persistently to you through your pain than he does through your comfort? It was Lewis who said that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. Right? God can be very kind to send hardship into our lives when that hardship plows through the hard-heartedness in our chests. Does this type of soil describe you? Well, that's the question that really we need to ask as we walk through Jesus' explanation of this parable. When we read Jesus describe a hardened heart, we need to ask, is he talking about me? And so ask yourself, is this me? Is my heart hardened to the word and to the things of God? When I hear the word, am I stirred to worship God? Am I stirred to repent of my sin, to trust in Jesus in faith? Or does truth just bounce right off of me? Does it leave me bored, unmoved, unimpressed? I, mean, I pray that you'll be honest with yourself in answering that question this morning. We must be. We must ask and answer is that me? In verses 16 and 17, Jesus discusses the second heart condition. I'm calling this the shallow heart. 
Read with me. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The shallow heart. And so when the seed falls on this rocky ground, initially there's enough soil and enough nutrients for the plant to begin to germinate and grow, but the soil lacks the depth for roots to grow, to take hold. And so the plant endures only for a while, and then it withers when the sun or the wind or the rains come. When someone with a shallow heart hears the word, initially they respond with joy. Initially, there's enthusiasm for Christ. Initially, there seems to be real life change. But that joyful transformation is short-lived because these plants lack deep roots. And so when trouble or persecution come, the plant, it quickly dies. Again, many of us know people like this. We can remember the joy that they and we shared when they seemed to come to faith in response to the word. We can remember the joy that they and we shared when their lives seemed to be transformed by the truth of Scripture and the power of the gospel. And we can remember the pain that we felt when they withered and fell away. Shallow-hearted people, they seem like they've been converted. They seem like they are surrendering their lives to Christ. They seem like they have truly repented of sin and become genuine worshipers of Jesus. But none of that in the end is true. What about you? When you consider your own life, do you see the evidence of a faith that is growing? Of a faith that is persevering even through hard things? Do hardship and trials strengthen your faith or do they hinder your faith? Has the gospel sown deep roots in your heart, roots that can endure tribulation and persecution when they inevitably come? Verses 18 and 19 describe the third heart condition, the strangled heart. Jesus says, and other seeds are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Like the seed sown on rocky places, this soil, it initially appears productive, but the problem is that there are other seeds in there, right? Other seeds that are productive. There are weeds in this garden, and they ultimately choke out the flowers. Jesus, he names those weeds, right? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. These are the passions and pursuits that strangle our passion and pursuit for Jesus. They are masters that demand our allegiance, calling us to bend our knees before them rather than before Christ. They are loves that diminish our capacity for loving Christ. And so again, we must ask ourselves, do the worries of this life grab our attention or consume our passion more than the things of God? 
Right? Are we deceived into believing that money or the things that money can buy might make us happier than Christ alone can make us? Do we long for what we do not have, things either big or small, instead of delighting in the fact that we have Christ? You see, church, for most of us, Satan's most effective strategy, it will not be to convince us that Christ isn't real. His most effective strategy will be to convince us that Christ is inconsequential, that the other things that we desire in life and can get a hold of in life matter more than Jesus does, right? Satan is quite fine with Jesus being a mere inconsequential part of your life or of mine. But if Christ is merely a part of our lives, then our lives are full of other things that can and in the end will crowd out our love for him and our passion for him. Those things are thorns that will ultimately in the end choke the growth of the seed of the word in our lives. So ask yourself today, is this me? Is my walk with Jesus merely a part of my life? Or is my walk with Jesus something that shapes and influences and forms every single breath that I take? Do I permit loves and passions and pursuits to live in my heart even though they diminish my love for and passion for and pursuit of Jesus? Is Jesus the sun around which every other planet in my life orbits? Or is he merely one of those planets orbiting around the sun of self? The fourth and final heart condition Jesus describes is the fruitful heart. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. When the seed is sown in good soil, it takes root. And the soil can support the roots. But there are no weeds to choke out the fruit. It grows and it produces a harvest, a bountiful one. Now, when God's word is sown in a fruitful heart, there are two kinds of fruit that are produced. There's the fruit of good character and the fruit of good works, the Bible tells us. When we think about the fruit of good character, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit listed for us in Galatians chapter 5. So that's where we should start if we're hoping to discern the condition of our hearts. Do we see in our lives the kind of fruit that Paul says will grow in the lives of people who walk by the Spirit? Are we growing in love? Right? Do we love others today more than we did a year ago? Are we growing in love for people who are annoying to us? for people who inconvenience us, for people who are, frankly, hard to love? Are we growing in love for our enemies, for people who have sinned against us? And in the same way, are we loving ourselves less so that there's more capacity in our hearts to love others more? Are we growing in joy? Right? Increasingly, do we see Do we see joy in our lives? And do other people see us as joy-filled? Like even when our circumstances are down, are our spirits up? Are we growing in the joy that only Christ can provide? We can just keep going and going and going on the fruit of the Spirit. Are we growing in patience or in gentleness or in kindness toward others? Right. This is the kind of character growth that the Word sown in good soil in our lives will produce. Do you see that kind of character growth in your own life? 
we should also see the fruit of good works in our lives. Ephesians 2 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do you see the evidence of the good works that God has prepared for you? Are you finding more and more significant ways to serve and love others? Are you finding more and more significant ways to lay your life down for the sake of Jesus and his people? Are you doing good works in your family? Are you doing good works in your church, in your city? If our hearts are good soil, if our hearts are fruitful, they will produce good works. Is that you? J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of Liverpool more than a hundred years ago, and he described the result of the seed planted in good soil in this way. He wrote, sin will be truly hated, mourned over, resisted, and renounced. Christ will be truly loved, trusted in, followed, and obeyed. Holiness will show itself in all our conversation, in humility, spiritual mindedness, patience, meekness, and charity. And then hear this there will be something that can be seen. The true work of the Holy Ghost cannot be hid. Church, does that describe you? Can you see the true, unhidden work of the Holy Spirit in your life? This is the point of Jesus' parable. Four types of soil, four conditions of the human heart. When the seed of God's word is sown in your heart, what kind of soil is revealed? Is it a hard heart, like the seed that is sown on the path? Is it a shallow heart, like the seed that's sown on rocky places? Is it a strangled heart, like the seed that's sown among the thorns? Or is it a fruitful heart? like seed that is sown in good soil. The way you respond to the word of God will reveal to you the true condition of your heart. Now we need to go back to verses 10 to 12, where Jesus and Mark explain not just this parable, but the purpose of parables. And I want you to remember that Mark is... He's answering a question for us. Why do some people encounter Jesus and still reject him? Or to put that another way, why, when the word is sown, do some people have hard hearts and others shallow hearts and others strangled hearts? Why do only some people have good hearts? In verses 10 through 12, Jesus answers those questions for us. Look at verse 10. Mark tells us, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And so the throngs are gone, right? The crowds are gone. Now it's just Jesus and his 12 disciples and a few more people with them. And they asked him about the parables. Verse 11, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and now Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, 
lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, there are a couple of important things to note here. First, I want you to notice that Jesus calls the knowledge of the kingdom of God a secret. Did you see that in verse 11? Right, the Greek word that he uses there is the word mysterion. From that, we get our word mystery. You can probably hear it in there. And so Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like a mystery or knowledge of the kingdom is like a mystery. In other words, its truths are not obvious on the surface. Its meaning and its nature, they are hidden. They are concealed. They are secret. Second, notice that Jesus speaks of two distinct groups of people. There are the disciples. Jesus says to them in verse 11, to you, to the disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, he gives the secret of the kingdom like a gift to his disciples. That gift has been given. But to the second group, to those who are on the outside, he keep reading in verse 11, he says, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus, right? It's, it's hard to understand, and it's also hard to accept. But what Jesus is saying is essentially that not everyone gets the gift of the secret of the kingdom of God. That's why he teaches in parables, right? To those who are on the inside, to those who have hearts that are good soil, the parables, they reveal the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, whose hearts are hard or shallow or strangled, the parables don't reveal the kingdom, they conceal the kingdom of God. That's the way parables work. They conceal and reveal at the same time. Which means that the way you respond to the parable really will reveal the condition of your heart. It will reveal whether you are on the inside or on the outside, whether you receive Jesus or reject Jesus. Now, what makes the difference practically in our lives between someone who receives Jesus and someone who rejects Jesus? Well, a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, they think that the answer to that question is something that's inside of you. There are many people who think that the people who receive Jesus are just somehow slightly better or slightly more righteous than the people who reject him. They think that there's something good deep inside of them that makes their hearts good, that makes their hearts good soil. But people who think this way, honestly, they're forced to conclude in the end that they think they are better or smarter than people who reject the gospel. More spiritual, more sincere, more authentic, something but they think that there's something in them that is more righteous and more virtuous than what is inside the hearts of their unsaved friends, neighbors, family, whomever. They think that it's because of them that they say yes to Jesus while others say no. But what Jesus is teaching here is something radically different than that. He's saying that the condition of your heart is a gift from God. That if you have good soil in your heart, it's not because you are good. It's because God has given you a good gift. 
that if you receive the word with fruitful soil, that's not because there's anything in you that is particularly awesome. It's simply because God himself is awesome. If he wasn't, then you would be, like Isaiah says, seeing but never perceiving, hearing but never understanding. Right? That's the point of this parable. Good soil is only ever good soil because of the supernatural work of the soul, of the Holy Spirit on the soul by God himself. Right? The people who embrace the word of God and receive Jesus with joy, they are people who have first been changed by the Holy Spirit, making them able to receive the word. Is that you? Does that describe you? If so, and I pray that it is so, your only response to that can be to praise the God who has made your heart ready to receive his word. The good soil of our hearts, it's a gift from God. It's not something that we've done. It's not the result of something that we've done. However, that does not mean that there's nothing we can do in response to this parable. And so let me this morning, before we close, suggest just a few ways that we can apply Jesus' teaching here. First, in light of this parable, we should examine ourselves for signs of hard hearts or shallow hearts or strangled hearts. And where we see those things, we should ask God for help. Help that we might repent help that God might change the condition of our hearts. Second, in light of this parable, we should pray for the growth of God's kingdom. We should pray that God would raise up more and more people who will sow his word around the world. And we should pray that the word would be sown in places where God has given the gift of good soil, where hearts have been supernaturally softened to the good news of Jesus. Third, this passage should give us just an unwavering and unshakable confidence in the power of God's word, right? The seed of God's word is powerful. When it lands in good soil, it produces fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. We can trust, therefore, that when we read God's word, when we hear God's word preached, when we sing God's word and pray God's word and study God's word, that God is going to work through his word to accomplish in us all that he purposes. And then finally, we should pray that our own hearts would increasingly resemble the good soil that Jesus envisions and effects. That God's word would bear more and more fruit in us the fruit of righteous character, the fruit of good works, the fruit of worship. And if you're sitting here this morning and all of this, and you are unsure about the condition of your own heart, my question for you is simple. How does your heart respond to the gospel? How do you respond to what the word declares about the good news of Jesus? 
right, when you hear the announcement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the creator of all things and the rightful ruler of the universe, when you reckon with the reality that he owns this world and owns even you, when you consider that he will make good on all of God's promises and that he alone is worthy of worship and allegiance, how does your heart respond to that declaration? When you hear the truth that you have offended God through your sin, when you hear the truth that you are fallen and guilty of high treason against heaven, when you hear that you are fully deserving of hell for eternity apart from God, how does your heart respond to that truth? When you hear that Jesus willingly chose you and died in your place, that he offered his life for your life, that he drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, that he bore the curse that you deserve to bear, that he gave his life as a ransom for many, that if you believe in him, that you will be completely freed from and forgiven for your sin. When you hear these truths declared, how does your heart respond? When you hear that Jesus rose from the grave in victory over sin and Satan and death, when you hear that he conquered death and ensured eternal life for all who know him, that he will return in glory to establish his kingdom fully and finally and forever, that he will one day wipe every tear from every eye. When you hear these truths, how does your heart respond? When you hear the message of Jesus, what happens in your heart? I pray today that it is soft. Church, I know that there are many among us who are, by the grace of God, growing and fruitful people with hearts that are soft to the word. Let me just say to you this morning, if that is you, I pray that you would be overcome by joy and thanksgiving at the kindness of God to you. But if, as you have listened this morning, if you have found that your heart is hard, if you have found that your heart is shallow, if you have found that your heart is strangled, I pray that you would take that as a challenge and not as a conclusion. I pray that you would see that as an invitation to life and not a sentence of death. And I pray that you would call upon the mercy and the grace of God that you would ask Jesus to change your heart, that you would ask him to give you eyes that can see and ears that can hear. I pray that you would ask him for a kind of hearing that transcends your eardrums and penetrates to your very soul. Pray that with me. Father God, you are so kind to speak to us. You are so kind to not leave us guessing as to who you are or what you are like. You are so kind to reveal the secret of your kingdom. I pray that as the truth of who you are is, is declared to us and, and seen by us in your word, I pray that we would respond to that truth with, with hearts that are soft, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to see more of who you are. And I pray that you would give us eyes to discern the hardness in our hearts, the shallowness in our hearts, the strangledness of our hearts, that we may turn and be forgiven.
pray that you would give us eyes to see more of who you are. That seeing who you are would produce in us good hearts that respond in worship. Pray that this morning in Jesus' holy and righteous name. Amen.